carried me to say this is my final day I hold you close to me so we're back with part two of Eva Cassidy on Rockabies so I want to ask just as just to get a general feeling like what do you think so far about everything that you've learned i'm asking both of you this ryan ryan and josh i i you know first heard her music in the late 90s and had no idea she went through this much training and had this many close calls to like popular success yeah i had no idea that she had so many close calls to popular success i i thought she it's it's amazing it's it's kind of hard to imagine that she was that close so many times so I'm excited to see where you take us next. Yeah. What do you think, Josh? Because you, because Ryan said he plays her, yeah. you know, at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, when you have like the trajectory of like a, a true talent, and it's that lightning in the bottle kind mm-hmm. of thing, where it's like, you know, mm-hmm. certain people make it through, some people don't, and you makes mm-hmm. you wonder how many people are out there right now exactly brilliant talents that are 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 trying everything that they can and Mm -hmm. i mean she's a little you know i think up to this point she's eclectic she's eclectic she almost seems reluctant though too she's very reluctant you know very reluctant not to fault her at all but if there was more of a she's like a desire to be successful but then does that mean that that you know because some people just want fame yeah, Do you know right. what I mean? Then Clearly, she doesn't want that. Like, it was definitely about the authentic. art for her, which is right. interesting. Yeah. You know? And being so young <clears throat> like that, like, from a little kid on, like, yeah. she just had it. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Like, it. We're back, and we're doing part two. I'm glad you guys came over. And, I'm like, when he told me, I mean, I'm grateful to be sitting here doing um, Eva Cassidy because... I was telling you guys, and I, I was tell the audience what I said to you guys, is that this morning when I was working on the outline, when I got to, like, certain parts, like the end of her life, Chico just started barking. Like, weirdly started barking. It was really interesting. Like, it was like chills. Like, I could feel something mm-hmm. in the room. It was yeah. pretty incredible. I'm excited to see where you take us. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to get there. So in 1994, Mick Fleetwood, founder and drummer of Fleetwood Mac, opened a nightclub in an office building in Alexandria, Virginia, which is so random. So random. And he called it Fleetwood. Many local bands performed there, and Mick would sometimes join in for a couple of impromptu numbers, and he was boiled over. And by the way, this was her hero, as we already know. I just can't imagine him coming on stage. Exactly. (laughs) He was boiled over with the Eva Cassidy band, and he joined them on stage. That's insane. And Eva got to perform with her hero. That's amazing. I know. Mick was surprised to discover that the band was unsigned. Like, he thought that was insane. And he promised to help them and offered his services for future recordings. He advised Eva to narrow her focus Kind of like what Bruce said. Yeah, they all keep saying that. Yeah, she simply had to choose between jazz, blues, or folk. And Eva responded, if the record company won't let me sing songs that mean something to me, I don't want to work with that with them. Good for her. I thought, genius. Yeah. It's a hard way to go, though. That takes bravery. Yeah. So since 1981, Eva had worked at Benke's Nurseries, which is a family-owned multi-acre facility, and initially, she worked there in the growing department as a transplanter. Then she worked in the greenhouse, watering, transplanting, and seedlings, and, you know, tying up poinsettias. poinsettias. I also read that her mom had worked there first, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Sounds like an amazing job. Yeah. Her oldest sister, Annette, also worked there part-time while she completed her nursing degree. In the 1990s, Eva transferred to the Woody Plants Department and became the only female crew member in that department, which gave her the opportunity to be outside, which she loved. Being the only woman on a crew of nurserymen toughened her up because people look at her as kind of delicate. But most of the time she dressed in a uniform, in an olive-colored uniform, and she got her hands all in the dirt, and she did potting, watering, weeding, heavy plants around, and driving forklift trucks. And people probably have tr- plants in their house that were potted by Eva Cassidy. That's amazing. It's so cool. And I want to say, by the way, Benke Plant Nursery, which is a family business, 
in Beltsville, Maryland, is closing this month after 89 years of business. This month? Yes. Right now? Yes. I literally looked it up today, and they said, as of like June, we're going to be, they announced it in April. Wow. Wow. So, a little piece of history there, right? Yeah. In 1993, Eva continued to struggle with self-esteem and was concerned about a small mole on her nose, which she thought looked awful. She went to see a dermatologist who removed it, but on closer examination, he discovered a larger spot on her back. Concerned, she, she was advised to have a biopsy, so Chris and Eva went to Prince George County Hospital, where she underwent uh, a lengthier examination. And they spent many hours in the waiting room until the doctors returned. They showed them several scans that indicated that the patch on her back was malignant melanoma. And the doctor subsequently removed a large strip of skin from her back and assured her that the cancerous cells had all been removed. But he also urged her to keep an eye on her health and check in regularly with the doctor. A few weeks later, she followed up with an appointment with an oncologist to see if it had spread, which it hadn't. And she made no further appointments. In the spring of 1994, Eva and her mom took a trip to Europe where they visited Eva's hometown. Bar- I'm sorry, Barbara's hometown in Germany. I don't know how to say that. Bad Kruzhnash. I have no idea. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good? <laughs> good enough. <laughs> bad is a good, bad name for yeah. a town. I don't know if that means something <laughs> in German. Eva loved it. In the final week of May 1994, along with Barbara's sister, Katrine, they tra- Barbara's her mom, by the way. They traveled further south to Greece. They hiked together across the Greek island Samos, and she concluded that the Nightingale Valley was heaven. It was at the hotel in Nightingale Valley that she gave her first European performance. She had bought a small guitar, and she performed on the roof under the starry sky. Beautiful. Days later, she was told that everyone in the neighborhood had opened their windows to hear this angelic voice. In fact, she was such a hit with the locals that they didn't want her to leave. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? That's so beautiful. Eva was also very fond of her cousin Walter, a cabinet maker like many of Barbara, her mom's relatives, who lived in Nova Scotia, Canada. And she and Barbara regularly visited Walter and his mom, uh, Dorothy, in the Maritime Province. I don't know what that Maritime Province, but this must be by the sea. In fact, the photograph on the cover of the Imagine album was taken by Walter. I'm going to show it to you while I'm, while I'm here. Eva's friendships were all important to her, particularly as she, the relationship with Chris was beginning to break down. She wanted it to be grow, but it became more, more obvious to her that she felt trapped. Um, she hated to hurt Chris's feelings, anyone's feelings, and because he was so important to her. He was her mentor, her bass player, her producer, and he stimulated her creativity. But she felt like something wasn't right, and she summed up her feelings to her mom, and she just said, Mom, as soon as men start an intimate relationship, they think they own you. So she asked for a temporary timeout from Chris, and it was, she thought, it's time to decide what I'm going to do. So that same year, 1994, her brother Dan went to Iceland to pay, to um, play, and he felt so at home there that he decided to make it his home, and he still resides there today, by the way. He soon became an in-demand fiddler because of his inability, or his ability, sorry, to turn his hand to jazz, blues, and folk. He invited his sister to visit him. Eva arrived with her mother and also fellow Stonehenge band member Larry Melton, with whom she had kept up a close relationship, a friendship, I should say, not a relationship. Dan had played Eva's tapes to the owner of the Blues Bar in uh, Iceland. I don't know how to say that. Reykjavik. (laughs) Reykjavik? Yep. Okay, perfect. And he agreed to her performing five nights a week over her three-week stay. The Icelandic audience listened in absolute silence each time. I had no idea. Mm It would have been crazy if he had gone there. Yeah. Dan noticed a significant change, had noticed a significant change in her musical choices from jazz and blues towards real folk ballads. She even performed the classic rhythm and blues song, Ain't No Sunshine. Mm-hmm. Ain't no sunshine when he's gone. It's not warm. 
As a folk ballad, which everybody copies, by the way. Her version. Her version. Yeah. Everybody copies that. I heard it on one of the um, talent shows. This year, someone copied it on one of the voice shows. Yes. Uh-huh. And I think I heard that yeah, that version. You called it out that yeah. day. Yeah. Yes. The version. Off her version. Yeah. Because yeah. you were talking about the, the, we were talking about earlier about there's one version that people hear. Jeff Buckley's. Yes, Jeff Buckley's version of yeah Hallelujah. of Hallelujah. Yeah. This is how it was with Ain't No Sunshine because that's how I heard that girl say it on that voice yeah. talent show. Eva was a great success, of course, and the audience were so respectful of their music and they showed their appreciation by sitting in a quiet circle around the stage. And it was on that trip that she met her good pal, Anna, Anna Karen, um, who was a member of several Icelandic bands after one of her performance at the Blues Bar and they became lifelong friends. I mean, I think of Iceland. I think of those countries. I think of Bjork, who I love. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bjork so is off the good. charts. Yep. Um, my favorite Bjork song is um, All is oh, Full of Love. Uh, hey, that's a good one. That's I think that's probably mine. That's yours, yeah, too, huh? Yeah. That's so brilliant. People need to listen to the words to that song, it's, too. It's probably one of my favorites. That's like genius. <clears throat> that's another one. I saw her at the Hollywood Bowl, by the way. Mm-hmm. Did you go that mm-hmm. night? You know, the only disappointment is she didn't sing the old stuff. Yeah. She's not going to be pigeonholed either. She's very That sick, she know. is not. Yeah. Bjork is another I one. I the Disney concert hall. She was so good. Did she sing the older stuff? A little bit. Really? Yeah. Like Human things. Nature and All remember. is Full of Love? It was a long time ago. I wish I would seen her a long time ago. But anyway, after her trip, one day while Chris was not at home, Eva, her friend Jackie... Her dad, Hugh, and her buddy, Larry, helped her move out. So Chris didn't know. They packed up all her things and took him to her parents' home while he was gone. And when he came home, he wasn't happy. But, you know, it didn't completely come out of the blue for him. But, I mean, how would you feel, Ryan, if you came home and Josh had moved out? If I hadn't told you, that'd be really... What if he was saying, you know, we're having problems, but he didn't tell you he was moving out. Right. That's a whole nother level. That'd be a level. little shocking. Yeah. That's a whole nother level. That'd be a little shocking. What would you do? I'd probably cry. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. For some reason, I thought you were going to say cry. I'd probably cry. Oh. That makes me teary-eyed. <laughs> I'd probably cry. What would you do, Josh, if you came home and Ryan moved out? He'd probably... You'd beat ass. He'd have a party. He'd beat ass. Well, it depends on if he left any of his stuff. Especially he, he left the rent money. Well, <laughs> the he left mortgage his stuff money. and be out on the front yard. I'd probably... <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like, he's coming back. He'll be here. He'll, He'll be, be back. back. He'll, be, He'll back. be back. He just had a moment. You know what I'd call his parents first? Because I know that's probably See? where he went. Like her. <laughs> yeah. Like her. Exactly. Chris knew what to do. See what I mean? I would, I would start crying, too. Like, that's I'd shocking. Cry. If you didn't tell me you were moving out. That's heartbreaking. Damn. Eva, what are you thinking? Eva, while she lived with her parents, her relationship with her dad improved. They took bike rides together. They enjoyed each other's company for a change. And they hung out together while Barbara went back to Germany to visit. So soon, she moved into her friend Jackie's house in Annapolis, Maryland, I think. Mm -hmm. And Eva surrounded herself with fresh flowers, vintage hats, old pieces of furniture that she bought at secondhand stores that she painted in light pastels. She filled the house with her arts and craft, and Anna Karen visited them regularly from Iceland. Jackie even made up a guest room especially for uh, Anna Karen. And on one such visit, Anna Karen organized a party for Eva's 32nd birthday. Eva enjoyed her birthday cake but suddenly left the other guests, retreating into her room, and no one took it personally because they knew that time alone was precious to her. Jackie asked Eva to help with cleaning and odd jobs around the house, and Eva said, I prefer to pay you to do it because I don't do chores. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, it's like that, boo. 
Um, she was extremely focused on her music and art, Josh. She sounds like she's turning into Vincent Van Gogh a little yeah, bit. A little yeah, which means he, that's why he loves her. Mm. There were two exceptions to the rule. They shared the responsibility for the bathrooms, which I don't blame that's Jackie. Fair. I mean, you got to. Yeah, of course. And in wintertime, they worked outside together to clear snow, which was very often very deep. Eva admired, still admired black culture, especially black music. And she was not a great reader, but she was passionate about Etta James's. That's who I got to do a rock of eyes on. Love Etta James. That, what a life. Yeah. Etta James's autobiography and Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple. You know The Color Purple, both of you. Oh, yeah. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. many times. So you heard the music? Many mm-hmm. times. The book, The Color Purple, was written by Alice Walker and published in 1982. It won the 1983 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It was later adapted into a motion picture and musical of the same name. Released in 1985, The Color Purple was directed by Steven Spielberg, his eighth film. The film starred Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, Danny Glover, and Adolf Caesar. The movie, a success at the box office, grossed over $142 million worldwide. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. It failed to win one and tied the record set by another film, The Turning Point, for the most Oscar nominations without a win. The musical opened on Broadway on December 1st, 2005. It was revived on Broadway in 2015 and subsequently made a star of Cynthia Erivo, who won a Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical for her role. She loved that film. And she loved the soundtrack of gospel and blues, which always lifted her spirit. I love that soundtrack, too. By the way, a little quick trivia. Do you know who was the producer on that soundtrack? Was it Quincy Jones? Yes. Mm. Ding, 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 ding. You did it. (laughs) I don't know why I knew that, but I knew it. I know. Have you seen the Quincy Jones documentary on Netflix? No. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I saw it before, and then at the invitation of a friend, I went across the street one Friday. I should have invited you. I went across the street to watch it, and he was going to be there at a cocktail party, and he was there. Thanks for the invite. I know. Uh, Next time. And you know what's so sad is that Peggy Lipton died the next day because her daughter, his daughter, uh, Rashida, Rashida produced that with another person, and she introduced her dad. He so came out. This was pretty recent. Yeah. yeah. And then Peggy Lipton died the next day. Yeah. Weird. I went on a Friday and then Peggy died. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Anyway, but you, should, you guys got to watch that documentary. Eventually, in late 1995, Eva got her own apartment and remained in Annapolis, Maryland, because it was the perfect place for so, small or solo gigs. The old town had a plenty of bars and restaurants interested in low-profile and acoustic live music. She liked to play at small, intimate places like the Maryland End, and tape recordings from the Maryland End would later appear on Eva's 2000 album, Time After Time. Oh, I know that album. Yeah, so it wasn't just the Blues Alley. Maryland End. Maryland End. Yeah, man, it's like if she had just gone like a few hundred miles and yeah. like relocated to Nashville even. Or New York, York. Nashville, anywhere. Exactly. Nashville more than New York, though. For her, for what she did was to the the types of places she liked to play. People would have appreciated her. She was on the cusp. You felt like there was a cusp. Keep going. I want to know what happened. Okay. Eva's shyness remained a problem, especially for those who didn't know her well. She lost herself completely in her singing. She still looked at the ground constantly, very rarely making eye contact with the audience. Ryan, have you seen the videos? Yeah. On oh, YouTube? Yeah. She just okay. Straight down. Yeah. yeah. Um, for this reason, she liked to play in dark bars and restaurants like Pearls, which was a small dark restaurant in a strip mall across the street from a cemetery, and also at Reynolds Tavern, the oldest tavern in Annapolis. Eva played there on Friday, October 7th, 1994, with Dan and their friend Larry Melton. Everyone who saw it still talks about that performance today and agrees it was her best ever. Dan, her brother, remembers there were some students in the audience, so I was a bit, ner- bit worried and nervous that they would talk during this performance. But from the moment she began to sing, they first whispered softly and then became completely silent in total admiration. And also in the audience that night was her dad, Hugh. Oh, I love that. I know, isn't that lovely? Yeah. 
So in October 1995, Eva, you know, I, I digressed a little bit, but maybe that was 1995 for 1994. Yeah, that was 94, yeah. I think that meant to be 95, maybe. Yeah. But also in October 1995, Eva sang background vocals on a track for Tupac Shakur's album. All eyes on me. What? Which one? I have. I love that. I, I had that album growing up. But guess what? The song was never released. Uh. But the voices of Eva Cassidy, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and Tupac came together on this recording. How do we find the song? I know. I I wonder. But just Snoop has it. Maybe Snoop has it. Doctor Dre would definitely. Even on like that Machiavelli kind of stuff, like never came out later. Yeah, because he died like the next year himself. What's yeah. it called? I, they wouldn't even say it. I couldn't even find the name. I'm going to still look for the name because wow, she was crazy. on Tupac's album. She did a background vocals for that. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. I bet Dre knows it too, you know? Dr. Dre has it. Because he was the producer on that album, All Eyes on Me. That was right after he got out of jail. Mm-hmm. Wow. On January 2nd and 3rd, here we go. This is for you, Ryan. Eva recorded. They thought, you know what? Chris was like, you need to record a live album and release it because you're not getting any anywhere with the record company, so let's do this. So they recorded at the legendary jazz club, Blues Alley, which is going to be a bumper on this show yep. because that thing is legendary. Yep. Founded in 1965, the Blues Alley is a jazz nightclub located in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C., Besides Eva, musical giants such as Sarah Vaughn, Charlie Bird, Whitten Marsalis, Ella Fitzgerald, Tony Bennett, Pat Matheny, Dizzy Gillespie, Phyllis Hyman, Charles Mingus, and Oscar Peterson have performed at the Blues Alley. Aunt Isabel, Hugh's sister, gave Eva $1,000 towards the recording. It was January 2nd and 3rd, 1996. They hired an engineer to record two performances, two different sets on two successive evenings. This would give them an opportunity to play each song twice if they needed to. And Brian McCulley, Eva's friend and colleague from Benke's Nursery, would also film the performances. So that film that you see is because of him. So remarkably... The film he took of the second night of Eva singing her version of Wizard of Oz classic Over the Rainbow would make her world famous years later. And the DVD she sings released in 2004, it contains more of this rare concert film. You can go on YouTube, you know. This is the only footage that has ever been released of her singing. Ironically, she still sounds beautiful even though, guess what, Ryan? What? She had a cold that night. Did she really? That's how Never beautiful. I know. So what you guys be hearing, what a wonderful wow. world. She had a cold. That's crazy. The album was called Live at Blues Alley. Yeah. And I want to show you the cover, Josh. I remember that. So and great. and it was called Live at the Blues Alley. And they asked the, they went back and asked him to put that up there, oh, by wow. the way. Yeah, a few days later. They said just to put that up there, you know, Eva Cassidy. And, and of course, the owner was like, of course, right? So the album was called Live at Blues Alley, and she dedicated What a Wonderful World to her parents. So when you listen to it, she sang it to her mom and dad, who were both present on the second night. And a week later, Al, Chris, and Eva listened to the tapes to decide the running order of the album. Al and Chris did most of the talking as usual, with Eva listening intently. And suddenly from nowhere, she spoke and she said, I don't like it. And they had to, like, reassure her. And say, no, this is good, you know. She asked her old friend Larry Melton to to take that photograph because he was a professional photographer, and they went back there, took the photograph that people would see on the album cover of Outside of the Lives, the Blues Alley. So Anna Karen organized another surprise party for Eva's 33rd birthday on February 2nd, 1996, inviting all of her friends she felt so relaxed at the party. She didn't shut herself away in the room. And they had like this helium balloon in which they had that high-pitched Smurf voice, you know, that they were playing all the jokes. And by this time, she had quit Benke's and found a new job at a place called Haven Studio, an art studio owned by Margaret Haven, 
who designed and created murals for school cafeterias in the area. And the murals were sometimes several feet high, and she often had to work on a ladder. She was often so focused on her work that she forgot to listen to her body, and when her hip started to bother her, she put it down to just the work position. And it was around this time that Eva had told her mom that, she was, that if she was to ever die, she wouldn't regret, have any regrets because she'd always been allowed to create. Hmm. Hmm. So Margaret was worried about her because of that, that hip and advised her to go back to the doctor. Despite her reluctance, she agreed, returning with the message that her pain had indeed been caused by working on a ladder for too long. The doctor issued her a pain of, pair of crutches and Eva used those same crutches to walk to what would become her final gig. Um, and I want to say this is before they, she did some gigs to promote the live album. Yeah. Because Al drove around different record um, com- record stores. I can't believe that they're all gone, but most of the record stores. And tried to leave some albums here and there. But her last gig was in July, and she was by herself. She had been drafted in at the last minute. Um, to substitute for another act that would couldn't make it that evening. And it was too late to ask her friends to come, so only a handful were present. A handful of people were present. Hardly anyone took much notice of her. The barman said he was frozen to the spot. And when Eva's last notes evaporated into the, into the atmosphere of the bar, he sighed and mumbled, Truly, this was a voice from heaven. July 6th, though, they had did it play at Tower Records in Washington, D.C. I mean, she's playing at such small venues, but her last gig was at the end of July. The doctor was unable to offer a diagnosis for her hip pain, but he advised her to stop climbing ladders. Nevertheless, she continued to show up regularly at Haven Studios to teach Margaret's other assistants. She much preferred being in the studio or in a canteen to sitting at home alone and in pain, so she was in bad pain. Right. In August 1996, Eva fell in her bathroom while her parents were on a holiday, and she had to call Chris to help her. She hated going to the doctors, and she tried to avoid going for as long as possible, but hiding was no longer an option. I know, you see this coming, huh? Mm-hmm. Chris took her to John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, where they ran numerous tests and x-rays. A few years earlier, when she had that malignant mole removed from her back, um, it was linked because they didn't take all of it out. And it had spread. By this time, the cancer had spread to her bones and her lungs. And she was told that if she didn't take action, she would just have months to live. And the only possible way to escape this fate was to undergo aggressive chemotherapy. And she would need a hip replacement surgery which had been fractured, and she needed to start an immediate course of the strongest chemotherapy available. She told her friends that she wasn't afraid to die, and she started her chemotherapy on August 14, 1996. Unable to care for herself, she moved back into her parents' house. Over the grueling weeks that followed, she would lose weight, her hair would fall out, she threw up and constantly, and she never complained. I know. And the weird thing is when I get into this, well, I'll, I'll warn you about when Chico started barking, which right. was crazy. So she had hip replacement surgery on August 21st, 1996, which was week, a week later. After her discharge, she regularly visited John Hopkins for tests, continued to visit for tests and chemotherapy. And while there, she met a girl named Kimberly, who had been going through chemotherapy once before. She had also become friends with Daniel a former cellist for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. During the long waiting hours, they discussed music and exchanged CDs. She told Daniel that she was working on a new album. The reality was that she was no no longer able to record. She was no longer able to sing or play for long enough. Her illness, combined with the medication, devoured her energy. Chris arranged proper medical insurance for Eva, but you know what? Eva already had medical insurance. I found out from her niece and reading about her niece said she had like medical insurance through like a musician's union. Okay. So she had uh, insurance, but I think Chris just wanted to raise more, more funds for her. Yeah. yeah. In case she needed it. So he and Al Dave took it upon themselves to organize a concert at the Bayou. 
and Al invited each of them to take part in the tribute as well as like Chuck Brown, Pieces of a Dream, and a lot of old local acts. The concert was named a tribute to Eva Cassidy, and on Tuesday, September 17, 1996, it was sold out, and it happened like with great success. She appeared on stage that night, and she played the opening part of A Wonderful World. Um, I don't think she could get through the song. I mean, I read somewhere that her band members were like like beside themselves. They, they couldn't even look at her. Um, the Bayou concert raised $10,000. It was hoped that the money would allow her to, the chance to travel or make a CD. And instead, instead, she gave the money to the four young cancer patients, including Kimberly and Daniel, whom she had met at John Hopkins. She was such a good person, mm-hmm. an angel. After this concert, though, she became bedridden. She couldn't walk anymore. Chris made her dream of releasing a studio album come true. He worked on dozens of half-finished recordings to create the album Evil by Heart. Chris worked as fat. You have that one too, huh? Wow. That was a a studio album. Yeah. He worked as fast as he could. He was desperate to have Eva authorize authorize these versions because he longed to make a record that was 100% in her spirit before she was lost to her illness. By October 1996, she spent most of her time in bed. On good days, she was able to move, but only in a wheelchair. And when she had visitors, she wore a baseball cap or a velvet beret. And after consulting with her doctors, treatment was stopped. Relying almost constantly on morphine and painkillers, she was in a near-permanent slumber towards the end. She slept a lot. She liked to have great chunks of ice um, placed on her tongue, which relieved her dry mouth, poor thing. Hugh, her dad, administered the medicine and helped her to eat and drink as much as he could. And when Bruce at Blue Note, the head of Blue Note, heard how ill she had become, he felt an overwhelming need to call her. He called her, and he apologized for not offering her that record deal. Eva was in a lot of pain, but her mother thought it was important that they talked. And he said, Eva, I'm sorry. We should have made that album together. It's my fault. Forgive me. I've made a terrible mistake. Then he started to cry. And Eva whispered, it's all right, don't worry. I don't have to forgive you. We had nice contact. It's good that we've met. And in the last month of her life, one of her favorite folk singers, Grace Griffith, came to see her. When Grace arrived with her friend Marcy, Eva was sitting in a wheelchair in the living room. And our, the backstory is that the mom contacted Grace and said, she, she loves you so much. Right. And so Dan, who had just finished his violin, violin parts on uh, another, another song, took part, and Hugh joined them on his cello, and it turned out to be a glorious autumn afternoon full of beautiful music. Eva was unable to play or even move, but she used her last reserve of energy to sing with her angel brigade, as she called them. Eva asked for My Hearts in the Highlands, a ballad by the Scottish poet Robert Burns. And um, it was accompanied by Hugh and Dan. Barbara then made a request. We're not sure whether Eva will be with us at Christmas. Can we sing a Christmas song together? (laughs) She handed Grace and Marcy the lyrics of a song that she knew from her childhood, the German language version of Silent Nights. Mm -hmm. They sang the first verse in German and the rest in English and the Christmas carol about the birth of a child, Jesus, who would die at the age of 33, was the last song that Eva would sing. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. During Eva's final week, she was visited by a nurse and spiritual advisor, Kathy. Now, however, she was facing the truth and had become fearful of dying. She had many questions and wasn't afraid to ask them. Eva was especially sad that she would no longer be able to reach out through her music. And by the way, this is the part where Chico started barking when I was working on the outline. Eva loved talking about angels, and she hadn't shied away from the fact that in order to become an angel herself, she must leave the earth first. And in the final week of October, Dan, her brother, said goodbye to his beloved sister, Eva. He entered her bedroom and said, Eva, you're going ahead of us. We're going to miss you, but you're going to go into a place that is better than this one. 
be brave, be strong. And she said, you're really good, Dan. You're one of the best musicians I ever played with, and you can play with anyone. The room was chilly on uh, November 1st and 2nd, and Eva's parents had put on a CD of some type of healing angel music, and Hugh and Barbara stayed awake in Eva's bedroom for the final two nights of her life, and she died just after midnight on November 2nd, 1996. And that night, two of Eva's friends, Mark Morella, remember the garage, mm-hmm. wasn't that, and Anna Karen, both different, different places, they saw her appear to them. She appeared to them. And they said she told both of them, it's weird, she told both of them that everything was okay and that the place where she was staying was wonderful. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. That's really overwhelming. I know. Mm, it's beautiful. Yeah. I know. <clears throat> and that's weird that I was working on just this part when Chica. Chico started barking so loud. Like, I'm like, what are they barking for? Yeah. I didn't see anybody outside. So there's an aftermath of all this. And um, on November 17th, 1996, staff journalist Richard Harrington wrote a long article about Eva in the Washington Post on a Sunday. And he titled, The Death of Eva Cassidy Haunts Friends and Fams. Fans. I said fams. <laughs> Probably too. <laughs> it brought home just how much Eva's music and voice would be missed. And he started out with that quote from Bruce Bruce said, Eva had the most extraordinary and singular voice I had heard in a very, very long time. It was distinctive, not only because of his power, but because of his timbre. When she sang quietly, and it was so mysterious, it could just freeze me. The first time I ever heard it was in my office. She sang an acapella, Amazing Grace, and I was just nailed to the wall. I made a very bad mistake. I should have signed her. She was a kid. Who knew? So, and by the way, Bruce died in 2015. Eva had begged of her parents, don't put me in a casket. And on that same day that that article by Richard was being released was the same day that her family and friends drove to the banks of St. Mary's Lake, which was one of Eva's favorite spots for walking and swimming. And they spread her ashes while Hugh read a poem that he had written some days before. And there was a remembrance ceremony for Eva, which was uh, held several days after her ashes were scattered into the lake. The ceremony was held under an enormous tree or canopy by a tree in Maryland State Park. Uh, About 600 guests arrived. That's a lot of people. At the next Whammy's award ceremony, her dad and her mom and dad were presented with several awards on behalf of Eva, who was chosen as Artist of the Year, and Chris and the other band members and Grace Griffith were present, and they talked with Hugh and Barbara about releasing the posthumous studio album, Eva by Heart. Hugh coped with the loss of his daughter by making a statue of her. He had been making sculptures from an early age. He's a very artistic man. That daggum Hugh. He just does everything. He does everything. He is amazing. Why wouldn't he be a sculptor? I know, right? (laughs) And it wasn't until Eva died that Hugh really became absorbed in creating art from scrap metal. He must have been inspired because he designed the face of the angel of that sculpture as Eva features. And this is what Hugh would say later in an interview. He said, when I visited her in the hospital, I told her, I was going to go home and make her an angel, says her dad. And, but she passed away before I could get it made. And it took me a year to finish it. But then I realized it was no longer for her. It was her. Yeah. And in 1997, Chuck Brown recorded an album of jazz standards called Timeless, which he released in 1998 and dedicated to Eva. Mm-hmm. Eva's friend Anna Karen sent the recording of Fields of Gold to Sting, the former police singer had rarely heard a voice of such purity. And in 2001, he was talking in an interview to the same guy, Richard Harrington, for the Washington Post, ironically enough. And he said he was sorry to learn of her death. And he believed that this somehow took the song to a deeper emotional level. And he was moved by her version of his song. He said her voice has a magical quality. It suggests something ethereal, something unattainable, which is so true. Ooh, 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 ooh. 
very fat, sad time after her death for everyone. Chris knew that to really honor her, he had to finish that Eva by Heart album. And in doing so, he created an album from the best material available. Working day and night on it, he comforted, it comforted him. The gospel song, Wait in the Water, was particularly soothing. And they went to Evil by Heart to release it through Chuck's label. Chuck, it was released first through Chuck's label. And then Bruce wanted to Blue Note to... Um, release other material, but um, as a result, Chris decided to give the Cassidys all the master tapes he'd made with Eva since 1988. Wow. Hugh paid Chris a reasonable sum for the tapes, and Chris gladly accepted the offer. After years of performing, Grace Griffith finally signed a contract with a small record company called Blix Street Records mm-hmm. just before Eva's death. Grace hesitated to tell Black Street, Bill Straw, the managing director, Bill Straw, about her talented friend. She admitted in an interview that she was afraid that Eva would overshadow her, which she did. Hmm. But she eventually decided not to hold back any longer, and she copied a tape of Live at Blues Alley making a field of gold and the opening track and sent it to Bill. Bill was entranced instantly, and he convinced he was convinced this is it. People are going to love this. Determined to release an album, Eva Cassidy album, he contacted, asked Grace to arrange a meeting with Eva's parents in April 1997. Over dinner, Hugh and Barbara quickly made clear their deep desire for the world to hear her music. And on November 2nd, exactly a year after her death, Straw and Cassidy agreed that Blix street would have the exclusive rights to release all her recordings but lawsuits happened after this by the way so because the cassidy's didn't have the necessary equipment in their home they went and visited chris at his studio to listen to the demo tapes and after a few hours bill said look um we can combine like all of her live recordings to start making albums which is what where you come in ryan yeah um and the album will be called Songbird. Yeah. It's what the first one that he would talk about. And the only unreleased song on Songbird would be a new version of Wayfaring Stranger. So Martin Jennings, who was, I think, in conjunction with Blick Street, mm-hmm. uh, agreed to release the completed Songbird album in the spring, spring of 1998 in the UK, Australia, and Asia. He believed that it would be higher than in the US, so they didn't really even release it here. So he approached one of his best, he called pluggers, in the, that sounds funny, but anyway, in the business to bring it to the attention of the BBC Radio Tube, Mark Harding was one of his best, like, publicity pluggers. Mm-hmm. And Mike had, act, ironically, heard his school teacher daughter's copy of Live at Blues Alley when he visited her in Washington, D.C. from Great Britain. And in early 1998, he was smitten by her voice. He went out and bought a copy for himself, and when he returned to the UK, he had a feeling that Fields of Gold would be a hit on his weekly radio show on BBC Radio 2. After debuting the song on UK radio in July 1998, the show was flooded with emails, phone calls, and even emotional letters. At the time, Mike believed that he was the first to play Eva's music in the UK, but in fact, just a week earlier, Paul Jones, another former singer with Manfred Mann, now a DJ, had played Wait in the Water on his weekly Radio 2 Rhythm and Blues show. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Several months later, Terry Wogan played the song Autumn Leaves during the last week of August 1998. It seemed like a snowball of energy. Yeah. Yep. So this seems to have been overlooked by everyone involved after the success of Over the Rainbow, which he played for the first time the following week. Two days later, he plays Fields of Gold. Listeners responded in droves. Hundreds of emails were sent within 10 minutes of the song being played. The BBC's phone lines were jammed and letters and faxes poured in over the next few days. Over the Rainbow, 
might have been an old song, but her version gave it a timelessness, which is true. Yeah. And that's another song that people always take and do their version oh, of. Yeah, that besides all, besides ain't no sunshine. Yeah. over the rainbow. So it just hit a chord, and taken by her and the public's response, Paul and Terry played other tracks from the album, including Songbird, which is a Fleetwood Mac song, and Fields of Gold. Other British DJs followed suit. British newspapers now turned their attention to this unknown singer, and suddenly Songbird was in demand. Hot Records responded quickly, arranging a full-fledged British distribution network. Sales climbed steadily, and by the end of 2000, the album had sold an astounding 100,000 copies, wow. like very quickly. So the irony is that um, they believed that they could make Songbird an even bigger hit album and sent the tape to Top of the Pops. So wow. People don't know what that is, but that's a big hit. Is yeah. it like a, what kind of show is it? Is it like a talent show? I thought it was a talent show. Top of the Pops? I don't know. I would have assumed that it's more like kind of Charts? like the Rick D's top 40 kind of a thing. Oh, yes. But yes, you're right. Because I was thinking of ABBA, and they didn't sing it Top of the Pops. Their first debut in Great Britain was on a reality show, but it wasn't Top of the Pops. You're right. It's like where top 40 people, like a right. David Bowie, would go to perform right. something that's already a hit. Here's the crazy thing. Not being in the market for unknown singers with that cold at Live at Blues Alley and a five-year-old black-and-white homemade film, the producer, Mark Hagen, thought it was too much of a risk to broadcast because people came to him saying, won't you play this? And he was like, mm, I don't think so. But for some reason, somebody believed in it. Somebody that was a part of Top of the Pots. Top of the Pots. <laughs> Top of the Pots. It's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um... And in December 13th, 12 days before Christmas, they showed that video of live at the Blue Alley, Blues Alley of her singing live, and it went bananas. That was it. As far as the UK, they, were, they fell in love with her. And in the incoming weeks, it was requested again and again, and her success continued and repeated in other countries, including Sweden, Denmark, Germany, Romania, Netherlands, Australia, but the U.S. was still to be conquered. Eileen White, which is Chris's new girlfriend, I think she had been his girlfriend for a while, was asked to design an illustrated booklet for the new Eva Cassidy album that would be called Time After Time. And Time After Time was released in 2000, four years after her death, and is a collection of songs that she had recorded alone and with other musicians. A year later, Blix decided to reissue Eva's first solo album, Eva by Heart. The album was first released in 1997, and a year after her death almost, and had included a 12-page booklet with excellent fo with photos of Eva. Initially, Hugh and Barbara paid Chris and the rest of the Eva Cassidy band some money from the profits from the album sales with a check and a really nice note coming to them every few months. However, in 2001, when Songbird became successful, the checks and the notes stopped. Mm. Eva's sales took off. Hugh and Barbara were advised that they had no legal obligation to pay Chris and the other bandmates. Uh, but they still gave Chris some money, and they told him that his share had to be shared by that band. Um, as the oldest band member, drummer Race McLeod tried to get Hugh to change his mind with the result that he was no, and he said you're no longer welcome at my house oh boy wow I know here we go yeah. I know money changes everything and money changes everything as Eva's star rose higher and higher her friend and fellow musician Dave there we go David and his business companions Tony Taylor and Al Dave Dale decided to release an album of previously unheard material Blick Streets reacted furiously. No Boundaries was the name of the album. They said No Boundaries was released without the approval, blessing, or support of the Cassidys, despite the misleading implication on the liner notes. 
Eva's parents had an exclusive contract with Blick Street Records, which gave them approval rights over everything Blick Street released. But, um, you know, and Bill Straw advised them totally, you need to sue. You need to sue Dave. And eventually a settlement was, was reached in which the parties agreed that no further copies of No Boundaries were to be made, but those already produced could be sold. I, got I, I, I know, because I read somewhere that she did sign rights to them. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? I have, I have No Boundaries. Wow, do you? Mm -hmm. What do you think? That's so good. Is yeah. it? Yeah. Is it as good as everything else? No. Oh, okay. So, however, on June 24, 2002, the Cassidy's and Blick Street Records made a legal claim alleging that David had no right to re-release re the album, focusing particularly on the fact that it might be confused with an Eva Cassidy solo project. They alleged that David had violated copyright and trademark law and called for, for an injunction to stop distribution of the album Method Actor. Despite an, agree an agreement being just around the corner, the case had to be reopened because of the inability of the Cassidy's and the Blick Street Records to agree on terms. So, I mean, it just got messy. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, the Cassidy's were happy to give David their blessing to distribute method acting. I guess method actor because of probably the relationship that she had had with him. Yeah. But the record company of course. was... They're not, not they're not friends with any of these people, so they exactly. Don't yeah. And as the case <clears throat> evolved, the Cassidy's, in fact, decided to cooperate with David, who had approached the producer regarding the use of the music method actor in a film about Eva. Blick Street Records once again asserted their exclusive rights over all Eva's works, but eventually the court found that the two parties were really working towards the same end, and the case was dropped. However, on March 27, 2004, Billboard magazine reported that Blick Street Records was suing Hugh and Barbara in another unrelated case. I mean, it just Crazy. goes on and on. I know. Eva's parents, because Eva's parents had given a filmmaker the green light to make a, doctory, a documentary about Eva, and in the suit filed in the California Supreme Court, Blick Street alleged that the Cassidy's 1997 agreement with the label gave the label exclusive rights to release all the recordings by their daughter. The label hadn't granted synchronization rights, licenses, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. for the proposed film soundtrack, but Blick Street alleged that the Cassidy's had gone ahead with plans for the film despite this. In the end, the litigation was dropped and plans for the film were shelved. It's just crazy. I mean, I'm... It's all about money. I know. Yeah. The lawsuits continue to fly. Now, Al, you know, he didn't pay get paid much. I kind of don't mind this one. He was never paid that much for his managerial services. But when she suddenly achieved all this posthumous fame, he called for his unpaid commission and expenses to be paid out of the huge royalties that Eva's work was now accruing. When they didn't pay him, he filed a lawsuit. And her dad... Advise, was advised to pay what he was owed and he did an out of court settlement I mean in May 2001 which you should go and look at Ryan I've ABC, seen, I've seen, yeah, you saw the nightline yep, yep, yep. dang it I can't stump you <laughs> ABC broadcast a brief but moving documentary on Ava in its late night news program nightline they can see it on YouTube mm -hmm. the effect was that over the following weekend all five of Eva's albums had been released up to that point, climbed the top spots in Amazon's sale chart. The documentary has since become one of the most popular installments to have ever been aired. And this is ironic. In 2005, Amazon celebrated its 10th anniversary by naming its top 25 selling CDs in the site's history. Eva Cassidy was number five. Wow. After only the Beatles, U2, Nora Jones and Diana Krall, but ahead of Bob Dylan, who was number nine, Bruce Springsteen, who's number 12. That's kind of surprising. And Elvis Presley was number 25. Wow. Hmm. wow. The American figure skater Michelle Kwan chose Eva's version of a Fields of Gold for a routine that she performed during several championships, including the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, Utah. Kwan's coach had discouraged her for the use of the song since it was unusual to skate 
to anything other than instrumental tracks, and he thought the lyrics would distract the audience or worse, the judges. But Quan was absolute in her decision. She loved the song. And she had ne- because she had never come across a song that relaxed her more while skating. She skated several times to Fields of Gold during her winter of 2001 Olympics, and her love for the song was plain to see as she sang along to it as she <laughs> skated. She won the bronze, and Eva's version of the song was introduced to a new audience around the world. It made her in the U.S. In the spring and summer of 2003, Michelle Kwan toured the United States with Champions on Ice, and which was a touring ice show featuring Olympic champions. And Hugh and Barbara saw the show in Baltimore, met Michelle Kwan backstage with Blick Street Records boss, boss Bill Straw. He had an unexpected gift from Michelle. Uh, due to her publicity performances, uh, Songbird had been certified gold in the United States, and he presented Michelle with a replica gold disc for her part in the success. Wow. In 1999, Laura Bly, the, do- uh, the daughter of Hugh's older sister, Isabel, started a website dedicated to Eva. And people can mm-hmm. go to it called evacassidy.org. I used to track it all the Did time. you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you still go on there? Uh-uh. 12, well, it's still around, I think, and it became the most important and interesting source of information on Eva Cassidy's music. Remarkably, it's still going on, and Laura still has plenty of current and relevant information to regularly refresh on the What's New page. <laughs> she logged every Cass- Eva Cassidy recording, including the bootlegs. She publishes reviews of Eva's CDs and DVDs from all over the world, sometimes with the help of some devoted fans. And uh, a musical about Eva's life is called Over the Rainbow and was staged in 2004. They had no rights to her images and her songs, so they just created kind of like their own play, the producers, and they changed the song, and this attracted a large, uh, large audience. And... It went up to its 11th tour. I think it might still be around in the U.K. so people can go see it. And it's toured Ireland four times, appeared in Holland, where it won the Theater Best Show of the Year Award, and had been booked to be to be uh, shown in Dubai. And no one from Eva, Eva's family has ever seen this musical. Huh, I never heard of it. Well, That's they were crazy. against it. They told him, like, no, you got to give us all the rights. Yeah. As for the regular members of the Eva Cassidy band, Lenny and Chris continue to work together and have won nine Emmy Awards for their musical scores to several television documentaries. Their work can be seen on a regular basis on National Geographic Channel. Simply Eva got to number four on the UK album charts in 2011 and was certified silver and then gold later that month. And there are many who regret that Eva has no grave but the silver gray haired angel that Hugh Cassidy sculpted from a scrap metal comes closest to the memorial and it stands in their garden. So he, he has it for the garden, which connects their mansion to the chi- to the shore of Chesapeake Bay. Oh, wow. Um, they have a huge white house. Yeah, <clears throat> huge white house. So they made a lot of money off of her. Oh, yeah. Music. At the bottom of that scul- sculpture, it says she represents all that's good and right in the world. You remember that was the same thing she wrote for Bernice's dog. Oh yeah, that's where that. he took that from. Yeah, I've never heard of the album Simply Eva. Yeah, Simply Eva. And oh. for my end quote, I thought about this, and this was from her dad. Yeah. About Eva, because normally I'm able to have an end quote from the person. Yeah. And I thought I did do some little quotes from her, but there were no interviews on her. Yeah. Her dad said, in regards to her music, I think people are hungry for a sense of the genuine. There is something almost mystical about her music, as if this was meant to be Eva's destiny all along. I just wish she had stayed around a bit longer so she could have, we could have all seen her grow. And he said this five years after she died. Wow. Yeah. And that's the Eva Cassidy story. So incredible. Right. So much new information. Fascinating. I know. Do you give you a good like sense like of Like such it? a small yeah. story, but such a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. 
totally because normally if you guys haven't heard the music go listen to it now she's amazing tell you know what yes <laughs> i bet she's on spotify and i'm gonna have a playlist that michelle's gonna probably put up with the um the website so people can go listen on we're on by the way rockabies is on um all the platforms it's on all the platforms yeah she's and on spotify she's on spotify and i'll i'll put all her albums are on there and so what i'll do is i'll put the playlist like i've done for everybody else on Spotify, so you can listen to the playlist of summer songs. Maybe I'll have because you can pull in some of those others, you know. Yeah, you know what? She's got on Spotify. And... She's got the other side, lives of Blue Valley, yeah, Ava by Heart, Songbird, Time After Time, Imagine, American Tune, Somewhere, The Best of Ava Cassidy, Nightbird, Acoustic, and Songbird Twenty. She's they got, got all, all of those them. albums on there. So I was just thinking this, Ryan. You yeah. should be the curator on our Rockabye's playlist for the Spotify. Okay. So you'll be the curator on it. Okay. And I'll uh, we'll I'll have him. I'll give him my um, <laughs> my uh, little password so he can go on oh, there. I'll put all the best. Because once there. you go on there and put it on there, it'll automatically be on there. Okay. Michelle just goes behind and do the we send the link to her and she puts it on the website. I'll give you all the best tunes by Eva Cassidy. Yeah, you should curate it a little bit. Put it all on there. If there's even sometimes like even for the Frank Sinatra one I did like interviews that he mm -hmm. did and stuff like that. Whatever's on, you know, like the best of the best that you want people to get the most of um, most Eva. Of yeah. What do you think, Josh? I mean, this was I mean, like... just a, a crazy, like, flash, you know, so quick. Just a... It's that Isn't flash, it sad? It's that bright candle, but just, you know... Isn't it sad? Yeah. Flash of light. Like, I mean, do you guys were talking about that there's no... Do you think that there's anybody that compares to her today? Because I don't even think Nora compares to her. No, I'm sorry. Nora doesn't. And I don't even know if, like, uh, uh, um, Adele. No. Because yeah. There's, there's, she don't have that soul. Have soul. That, that... Like, she really worked at her craft. Yeah. Ava's voice cries. Eva's voice cried. And her dad was right about it being mystical. Yeah. Like, it captures your soul. You have to he, listen to people get ready. Oh, I heard that. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. That's so what I good. sent to my friend Kevin. Yeah. That's that like, she loved that song. And by the way, People Get Ready was written by one of my favorite, favorite musicians of all time. And that's Curtis Mayfield. Oh, he's the best. Curtis Mayfield is her genius. Her version of that song. Oh, it's beautiful. It's haunting. So haunting, yeah. Yeah, like Fields of Gold. Yeah. Because the way he sings, things sing it, it had such a Scottish type of yeah, yeah. tone to it. But when she sang it, it had this haunting feel that was beautiful. And Ain't No Sunshine is great, too, mm -hmm. by Bill Withers. Yep. Yeah, so, you can wake up on a Sunday morning and listen mm -hmm. to her music or go to bed on a Thursday night or Saturday to... night yeah. <laughs> how do you like um, how did you feel did you feel sad don't you feel like an overwhelming sense of sadness that do you feel like she was I... on a cusp I mean she would have never you know I read somewhere she would have wanted it this way she didn't want that thing I don't like feel she... sad because I feel like she was so present in her everyday life that she right no regrets man mm. no regrets on her part because you know what? I don't think she, she would have been able come to come off as a victim to any of it. No, not at all. And she was strong. I mean, yeah. do you? I don't know if she would have been able to handle all the nonsense that would have come with fame. Yeah, I mean, that's why she didn't produce an album by her. That's that's ridiculous. That would have yeah. sounded silly. Yeah, and she was such a perfectionist in the '90s. I mean, that that album would have been lame. It would yeah. have been not authentic at all. She wouldn't have released it no. because you know what? She would have been sitting there tinkling with it yeah. you know what i mean mm -hmm. she's a tinkerer with her mm -hmm. stuff till she felt like it was accurate that perfectionist kind of yeah. thing does this give you a new sense of appreciation for her yeah, yeah for sure definitely a new perspective i didn't know so good yeah. melissa you're good oh thank you so that is, that is a lot of information and a lot yeah, of thanks for doing all this life. work That's into it. it's crazy incredible. people thank you thank you so much i mean people have really you know people are going to be listening to this all around the world you know when i look at the statistics there are people listening in dubai there are people listening in brazil there are people who listen i wanted to tell you after the fact that's amazing. Um, that's yeah, everywhere, everywhere. I mean, well, that's the greatest thing is her music. Morocco, lives, her music lives on. Yeah, Mongolia. 
1980s, 90s, 2000s, and her music I know, is isn't timeless. it amazing? It's, it's like it's almost like it grew. It's timeless. It grew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be around long, a lot longer than 100 years past oh, us. Yeah. Her music is totally timeless. Well, I appreciate you coming, you know, and I appreciate you introducing me to this amazing soul. I'm happy to. Um, thank you. Thank you. You got your little thing wrapped are the, right um, Are the microphones still on? Yeah, no, the microphones are still on. They're still, still on? Recording. Yeah. Oh. Still got you. She, yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> After all that. <laughs> I, yeah, you, I, I'm making you, I'm putting you on the carpet about that curating. See? The fans will be able to I hear will it. curate some of the best tunes for all of you for around Spotify. the world. For Spotify. All of Melissa's fans around the world. Ooh, rockabies. The rockababies. All of rockababies out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate you guys coming. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. A nice shout out to Dubai and to where else? Mongolia. Mongolia. Brazil. I mean, Japan. Japan. You know what? There was this guy on Instagram. You know that song, Rockabye? Yeah. Baby, Don't You Cry and all yeah. that? And he put it at Rockabye's oh, I love podcast. That. And I was like, God, thank you. From Hollywood, mm-hmm. California. From Hollywood, California. You Rockabye. The We're rock-a-bye. shouting out to our Rockababies. Yeah, around the around world. Around the world. Yes, yes. Because there's only yeah. one thing that's universal. It's music. Isn't that right? Yeah. That is right. That's why... I do it because I, I'm such a music history geek and dork, as you can tell. And uh, people, it seems to be a unifier. It is. Not a divider. No. You know, yep. we got, we know, need more there's unifying. Enough of, there's enough of that, right? Exactly. Peace and love. Peace, Peace and, and love. love. Okay, kids. Take care. Rock byes. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to listen to the songs that were mentioned in the series, you can go to a curated playlist of the artist and Spotify under Rockabye's playlist. Please subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. One additional note, the information in the episodes are based on my best research. I'm your host, Melissa. Always remember, you're a shining star no matter who you are.